Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. Peace may seem an elusive concept in a world with horrific violence, brutal conflict, and exploitation. Yet never in humanity's history has such a comprehensive map of peace emerged as is now evident. What we call a culture of peace comes from a whole system's perspective, which sees all things as interconnected and influencing each other. We can map whole societal shifts and transformations from ancient cycles of violent division and conflict to demonstrated strategies for conflict resolution, social healing, and reconciliation. We are increasingly aware of our interconnectedness and interdependence, and we act accordingly. Those are the words of James O.D. from the book, Our Moment of Choice. And today I am really happy and honored. We are going to explore this more with two of the co-authors as well as two of the co-editors as we deepen into a series of conversations on our moment of choice. So today we're going to explore how you can build a global community and create a culture of peace. I invite you to take a few deep breaths. Open your mind and heart and settle in to your essential wholeness as I introduce our guests. Dr. Kurt Johnson has worked in professional science and comparative religions over 40 years. A prominent figure on international committees, particularly at the United Nations. He is author of over 200 scientific articles and seven books, including The Coming Interspiritual Age. Kurt has a PhD in evolution and ecology and has served on the faculty of New York's Interfaith Seminary for 12 years. He is host for Unity Earth's Convergence radio series at Voice America, a series featuring global changemakers, and an editor of Unity Earth's two magazines, The Convergence and Light on Light. And Reverend Deborah Maldow is an ordained interfaith minister committed to assisting in the transformation of human consciousness. She is the founder of the Garden of Light, providing an online platform for emerging global spirituality. Deborah is director of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, a project of the Source of Synergy Foundation that brings together visionaries committed to the acceleration of the conscious evolution of humanity. She's also vision keeper at Unity Earth, co-facilitator of the Conscious Business Synergy Circle, and co-editor of the 2020 book, Our Moment of Choice, along with Kurt Johnson. And welcome to you both. Welcome, Kurt. This is your Thank first you time. Thank you so much. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Good to have you back. Good to be here. And Deborah, welcome back. We began the series with you last week. It's so nice to have you back. 
Oh, pleasure to be back. And it was wonderful to be speaking with our third co-editor, Bob Atkinson, last time. Yes, it was great. And I'm looking forward to the unfolding and the emergence of, of this voice as we continue to move through the circles that are in this book. And we're going to talk more about that. And wow. Where to begin? I love this chapter. I love this circle, not the chapter. There's the very first circle in this book is about building bridges, bridge building. And I'm just going to read the subtitle of it because I think it's important. And here we are. Together, we can build a global community and create a culture of peace. We're going to talk about that more and more today. But Deborah, why don't you first explain what I'm talking about with circle one, circle two, circle three, and then we will dig into the content in circle one. Thank you, Dr. Julie. We're so grateful to you for doing a series on this book because the seven circles that um, the chapters are divided into in in this book uh, represent these really not circles which are flat, but more like spheres of um, what is happening right now. What are these areas that are foremost in this movement of conscious evolution and the choices that we need to make right now? So the, the book uh, has these seven circles. As you said, the first one is, um, is bridge building because it's kind of a place to begin. And then we have restoring ecological balance without which we cannot move forward as a species, conscious enterprise and social change. We have healing ourselves and the planet, integrating science and spirituality, new frontiers beyond space and time. That's my favorite circle title. Isn't that intriguing? Mm-hmm. And the big picture. So for a book, with 43 contributors, all of whom are members of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, and 37 chapters plus a, an introduction, a prologue, uh, prologue and epilogue. Uh, um, we needed to organize this because we're, we're looking at the whole world and the whole civilization right now and what is needed, as you said, to move into a culture of peace. Now, this is a term that came through the United Nations. And the first time I heard it, I was so struck by this term, a culture of peace, because it made me realize that our culture has been anything but peaceful. So um, I was quite delighted that we were able to start this book with chapter one, being James O'Dea's great map of peace. Because even that concept of there being a map, I found completely intriguing. So I think it's a wonderful way to step into the world of our moment of choice. This book, which is so rich in, uh, as the subtitle says, evolutionary visions and hope for the future. 
Mm, thank you, Deborah. I quoted James O'Dee's um, chapter to, to start the show in the intro, and I'm intrigued by this map as well. And, and Kurt, I'm going to bring you into this piece because there's a couple pieces that I really want to presence with, with James writing before we move into both you and Deborah's little chapters as well. Not little chapters, meaningful, <laughs> deep, incredible chapters. I shouldn't call them little. But brief. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's what I love about this book is you've taken all of these different authors and created a brief, succinct, concise, those probably means the same thing, chapters that bring us right to the point and then take us on this journey. And and I will ask you later in the show about this, the coherent threads that move us from chapter to chapter. But but Kurt, let's let's begin with you, and I'm just going to presence a couple things from this great map of peace that I think are really important. And one of the the first concepts that that James O'D brings up is that we that law that legislating peace hasn't been enough. It as an evolutionary driver of progress and cultural transformation, it's had limitations, it's not enough. So we need to move beyond this idea that we're going to legislate peace building. And and I, I love that about his first chapter. And he, then he brings us right to the first topic of forgiveness coming into this personal. So I'm going to read another quote, and I just would love to have you reflect on this with me here. Forgiveness and its role in personal and societal healing has seen a surge of interest in recent years. Forgiveness moves the victim beyond the trauma and violation and the trap of wound attachment syndrome. Without forgiveness, victims are often left with unresolved resentment and even hatred. Forgiveness offers a path of redemption for the perpetrator and a path of healing for the victim. And then he continues into this map, and we're going to talk more about that map. But the, the thing that struck me here is coming back to that personal, Kurt, you also reflect on personal evolution in your chapter. So it's like, it's, it's really an important first circle bringing us into this personal. Can you expand more on this idea of forgiveness as an essential piece of building bridges, and moving into a culture of peace. Yeah, well, I'm actually going to say uh, several things, because it's interesting that if you look at this uh, title, the, the, the Great Map of Peace, it actually is a way that really frames the whole book. So what I want to do, just a little bit, is circle back in the way that the book was put together, and some of the big surprises that emerged from that process. Um, usually when you book package or you put together a book, you actually start with the concepts that you want to include, and then you go out and you recruit your authors. And interestingly for us, as the group of evolutionary leaders, that particular circle, it, it, it ended up being the other way around. We told people we wanted to do a book. We invited their submissions. And then we had to take a look at what we got and decide uh, what we do with it. And what was interesting about that is that not only did we see this map of, I'd say you would say, seven different elements, which would be the components of peace, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that definition of peace in a moment, but 
before we did the show today, I was reflecting on the book a little bit. And what's interesting is that if you look at every circle and the chapters within that circle, again, just by chance or whatever it was, serendipity, you end up having this mix of people who are taking a top-down approach, starting with the big and working down to the little, and people who are taking the bottom-up approach in their circle and starting at the grassroots and working up. So you had this really interesting mix, even within each circle, of people who are going from grassroots up and people who are going from big picture down. And that that really then inculcates everything that's going on in this global revolution that we're seeing uh, going on. And one of the other things that you see in every chapter is you see people that have ideas about the theme in that circle, but then there are also other authors who are doing the hands-on work for real change in real places with real people in real time side by side with that. So I, I think that's one reason the book is so potent and in a way that happened by accident. Now, what's interesting, the way that that relates to your question is that I've done a couple of books with Philip Helmick on um, peace studies. And um, you find when you do that, that the definition of peace is not really the absence of conflict, which then would bring in what you're talking about, legislating, oh, let's not fight. But it actually, the arrow goes the opposite direction, that when people are getting along, then peace is natural. When people are getting along, when they have all the shared resources that they need, they have life, liberty, and the possibility of the pursuit of happiness, then peace is the natural state. And it's not then a matter of legislating with regard to it. It's a matter that you've established the in the environment in which that is what what naturally happens. So the last thing about that then is what's interesting now, if you look at the global revolution that's going on, we've got this crazy mixed up world that's going on business as usual. And within that, there's this gigantic surge or tide that's welling up that major, major structural change and major differences in just the entire global culture of thought and care and love and structure um, needs to happen in order for this siloed world of centuries of countries and languages and flags and all these different competing elements to actually have that go to a successful global commons requires the kind of revolution that's really talked about across all of these seven circles that if you really said what would need to happen in consciousness so that we would have a natural environment of peace, not one we would have to legislate about. It really involves every one of those topics that's in those seven areas. So the long and short of it then actually is the book is really, really organic in that way. And I think uh, that's one reason that it's been so effective. So that's why actually James's uh, article is, is, uh, is perfect to start it because this is really the map of peace. What what would the world's culture look like so that the natural situation was, was one of peace? And then to go to the forgiveness thing, just a real quick flip there, that's a matter, again, you know, when people are happy, when they have the things that they need, and that environment of life, liberty, and the possibility of the pursuit of happiness, the need to hold grudges or the need to have revenge or have retribution, you know, disappears into the soup because actually the natural state of our true nature and just who we are 
will cultivate the other. So forgiveness is not that difficult when you're not in a competitive environment for resources or for space or for the environment that you're living in. So there really is one big package. And I think last thing I want to say is that if you look at any planet anywhere in the universe, they've all had to go through this transition. It'd be interesting if we actually knew and we don't, you know, how many made it and how many didn't. It's a gigantic transition coming from all of these silos. I mean, what they say now, 36,000 religions that we've had, 40 some thousand languages that we've had, all of these silos to get that then to work at a global level, not to mention a species that's multiracial where you've got yellow people and black people and red people and white people, that's an added element that might or might not be true on another planet. But these are, these are huge challenges, and, and, and that's why the title, Our Moment of Choice, is just so obvious, because our planet is at that pivotal moment where it's either going to make it as a global civilization or it may not make it as a global civilization. So... Mm. Long answer, but uh, it's a rich question. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciate the the whole transition idea that, yeah, we have we're in this moment where there has been that competition, that that consciousness of separation creating the separate silos and the competition, and and so we have to go through these times of forgiveness culturally and personally, and yet when we transition, I love how you presence that there will be less need for forgiveness because we're not in that place. And so I love that. That gives all of us hope when we're thinking about this. And when I look at James O'Dee's suggestion of what a culture of peace looks like at the end of this chapter, I'm going to encourage every listener to go out there and buy this book and look at these little bullet points and go, yeah, this is the world I want to live in. So, Deborah, another piece that he presents that I think is really important before we we move on, um, I love this idea of heart-centered communication. And many of the organizations and networks out there of, of us working toward this culture of peace and, and really creating this evolutionary vision for us on the planet are working on heart-centered communication. And, and James says, effective heart-centered communication builds environments where people listen deeply and feel seen and heard while expressing their truth. These skills are essentially needed culture-wide in the home, at school, at work, in our communities, and in our political discourse, as they create fields where people feel nourished and even loved despite their differences. This heart-centered communication leads us to the door of spiritual growth where we can explore the terrain of inner peace. Again, this is such a beautiful prescription for us, Deborah, of let's let's move into heart-centered communication. So many people are teaching heart-centered practices, understanding heart math is out there. And I just want to um, invite you to expand a little bit on this idea of practicing peace begins with the heart. Beautifully said, Julie. And uh, I think that this movement from our heads where we've spent the last couple of hundred years, you know, in our developing technological uh, civilization 
into the heart or perhaps even back into the heart is key to this moment of um, evolution to a new level of consciousness. And this new consciousness is at the root of the culture of peace and and is is essential to our achieving it. So everything that Kurt was saying, uh, it was implicit that it is this new consciousness that is going to lead us to be more heart-centered, to communicate from the heart, to educate the heart as well as the head, so that we move into a kind of relationship with one another as family, as one human family, in spite of all of the differences that make us so interesting to one another. You know, we, we wouldn't want to all be the same, but we all want to be appreciated. And in this moment of choice, we have the opportunity to bring forward what's unique in us, in what we choose and how we choose to serve. And the act of service itself is what comes from the heart so that our purpose is not merely to uh, enrich ourselves or make ourselves look better to our neighbors, but truly to serve the what is emerging in all of humanity. And James O.D. has a background with Amnesty International where he really got to experience on the ground the difference that it made when people were communicating from the heart and the enormous healing that that can bring about. And I think that, too, is this moment right now where the coronavirus has only amplified our global need for healing. It's time. It's time for us to put aside old grievances that, as Kurt explained, we don't need anymore. When we're happier and healthier, then we're not going to hold as many grudges and uh, have that kind of bitterness that often breaks into armed conflict. It's over. War is over if we want it, <laughs> as the famous John Lennon once said. Uh, and we do want it because we know now that we don't need it. Violence is not a good way to solve our problems. It never has been and it never will be. And now that we're aware of that, it's time for us to learn to communicate from the heart so that we can build together a culture of peace. Mm, thank you, Deborah. I am just really feeling the fullness of the, the breadth and the depth of these simple um, suggestions here when we talk about the forgiveness piece and we're talking about heart-centered communication and all the heart-centered practices and both of you alluded that like not only is the practice of forgiveness and the practice of heart-centered communication a pathway toward personal peace but that shift in consciousness that occurs naturally leads to a greater practice of heart-centered communication and forgiveness it's like it's an it's an and both beautiful prescription for us so right before break after break i want to really dig into both of your contributions in this book which are exquisite but right before the break as again looking at what james od is bringing us here 
with this vision of a culture of peace on page eight and page nine. I'm wondering, Kurt, if there's, without spoiling it for our (laughs) readers, because we want them to go out and buy this book and just like really sit in this vision. Like, to me, it's exciting. But what it also does is, is when Deborah mentioned serving what's emerging here, serving the emergent piece, um, and we're going to talk more about that in her chapter, Kurt, with these simple visions, it's like this bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Is there any, well, to me, anyone can pick up one of them and, and devote their time and energy to it and really find a pathway for their own service toward a greater whole here. But Kurt, is there any one of these bullet points that stands out for you as perhaps a good first step for a listener to focus on? Yeah, I I think the, the basic bullet point that everyone wants to focus on is that if we're actually cultivating that which satisfies our actual true authentic nature, that's one that is is peaceful at its implicit, as I said, its implicit state, which is what you said. One quick thing I'll say is there's actually a bullet point left out of the book by accident, but some of the people who've reviewed it have brought this up. And that is that probably the the biggest danger in the world is actually individuals who are power hungry and who are psychologically damaged, particularly narcissistic types, who rise to the top of our current structures of power and actually then drive things the opposite direction. We don't have to look far to see that the world is full of those damaged personalities that are in positions of power. And if they consolidate other let's say, ill, sick individuals around them, then you actually can have a 5% or even less that's driving this negative narrative, even if 95% of the rest of the world is on the other narrative. And I think that's one that was pointed out to me by a reviewer that wasn't addressed. I would say that that's by chance. But um, that, that is a big question. You know, our, our planet might go down because of leaders, not because of the general mass of people and where they're at. And it's just something to keep in mind. Those are people who would not be cultivating that major bullet point that you just asked mm. us to stress, which is that implicit nature, which is about love and peace. If you're a damaged person and then you're seeking another way of acting because you're damaged and yet you're also in power because you've been good at competition or bullying or whatever the case may be. This is an, another phenomenon that we really need to address. Mm, thank you, Kurt. That's a good place to take a break here. When we come back, you're going to hear more words of hope as well so that we're not ending on a negative note here. There's so much more to come. We're going to really dig into the conversations that, that Deborah and Kurt bring to this book. So we will take a quick break and we will be right back. you 
You're listening to Empower Radio, an entire radio station devoted to your personal development, expanding your conscious awareness, and empowering positive change. Meet our hosts and listen online at EmpowerRadio.com, on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, or iTunes, or download the Empower Radio app for your smartphone or tablet. It's free in the App Store, and it lets you listen to our shows and podcasts on demand. Empowering people, empowering change. Empower Radio, online at EmpowerRadio.com. All right. I know this isn't any fun to talk about, but we should. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Where to be found. Batteries? Dead. Great. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. No. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Good enough. Cell phones? May not work. Uh, emergency water? Not a drop. And what about food? Nope. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated, yeah? The library! Aunt Joan's house. The bus stop. Great. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Sounds like we don't have a plan. Who's up for mini golf? Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. When dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Any daughter would do the same. But soon enough, he needed help doing more things. And it was up to me to be his personal shopper and financial manager, too. And before I knew it, dad moved in with me. So I became his cook, his personal assistant, his physical therapist, and even his nurse. When I started taking care of dad, I didn't realize all the roles I'd have to play. But no matter what, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the many roles you play. And to help, we created an online caregiving resource center. At aarp.org caregiving, you can find resources and connect with the caregiving community. Together, we can better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving to learn more. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave2037. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck for Dave2037 so he can buy anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman. What are you getting Steve2037? Steve2037 will be just fine. Well, okay, but don't expect to borrow my anti-gravity boots. Save something for the future. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's Feed the pig. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also stay connected all week on my Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. I invite you to be a more conscious, courageous, and compassionate co-creator of the beautiful, healthy world we depend on. Come work with me. There's lots of ways to do that. You can check out those opportunities at juliecrawl.com and goodofthewhole.org. And you can learn so much more about our guests today and this book I have in front of me, Our Moment of Choice at Our Moment of Choice. 
www.thepowerofthenamesofjesus.com. Deborah, I want to start the second half with your chapter here, Spirituality in the 21st Century, A Quiet Revolution. I... I'm, I'm excited about this chapter, and I'm excited about Kurt's chapter, and I can't wait to just expand on both of these concepts. Deborah, you wrote, the turbulence and chaos of this crisis provide us with the fertile soil in which to plant the dream of a new human civilization blossoming into a worldwide culture of peace, and the light that will help bring it to its fruition is inside each and every one of us. I'm excited to bring this line of conversation in, and I'm wondering if you can expand on what do you mean as you speak of more that the as you speak of the light that's inside each one of us. Can you speak more about that light? <laughs> I think you're demonstrating it, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, spiritual concepts are often challenging to put into words. And that may be why we have uh, we have had, as Kurt mentioned, 36,000 religions in the world. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know it when you experience it. And you particularly know that light when you experience it in another person. And when I hear you speaking about the book and the inspiration that it's given to you, and when you quote the passages that you like the best, I can hear your light coming through your voice and your being. And as, as Kurt was saying, the, the essence of each person is deeply loving. And uh, the, the light shines forth through the heart. Mm. So you can't miss it when it's happening and you can't not notice when it's not happening. So awesome. for instance, Kurt brought up politics and leaders who are not appropriate for bringing us into a culture of peace. And you can hear in their voices, anger and resentment and bitterness and need for power and lack of generosity and all of these qualities that we consider to be negative, that every religion considers to be negative. And then you hear someone get up and speak to our basic humanity, and you can just feel the light flowing through them. And this is why uh, the little nonprofit that I started, the Garden of Light at gardenoflight.org, is all about this emerging global spirituality where we are, in fact, recognizing the light in each and every one of us. And this is beyond any dogma or um, religious uh, codes or systems. And this is, a, this is a universal that is emerging right now and being recognized you know, when you when you meet somebody who is on this threshold of this new consciousness where this book, our moment of choice is is pointing us. You know that you've met a sister or a brother because they aren't carrying the old resentments. They aren't looking at the world to see what's in it for them. They're looking for how to serve. Mm, I love that. 
Deborah, I'm gonna. I just want to continue on this this path. And both you and Kurt are recognized interfaith, interspiritual leaders here. And you point out to to that specific shift in our culture that's that's deeply seated as an interfaith expression. You write decades of interfaith engagement have led us to understand that all religions point to a truth beyond our comprehension, all expressed through different languages, cultures, and eras, the need for us to be kind to one another and to tame our natural instincts to act for our own benefit in favor of acting for the greater good. And this is such an important topic. This right here, this topic defines our moment of choice to me. Can you say more about acting for the greater good or acting in service of the whole and presencing that topic here as our moment of choice. I think, uh, Dr. Julie, that you understand this perhaps better than most because your organization is called The Good of the Whole. Mm. And in my experience, particularly in my experience as an ordained interfaith minister, I find that when people begin to wake up, the first thing that they look for is that purpose. And I've heard so many people who are frustrated because they feel called. They know they have purpose, and yet they don't see it in their lives. They don't see it connected to their job or their family or how they are in their community. And yet it, it's always there. So whatever we are serving, we're serving in every aspect of our lives. And that's why this book is an invitation to everyone, because everyone who reads this book is going to be the kind of person who is looking for their purpose and who wants to serve the emerging civilization that is going to bring us back from the brink of disaster where our unconsciousness has brought us and to something much, much more beautiful and satisfying than we can even imagine. And the, the whole theme of the book in general is that everyone has a role to play. And you don't have to be doing something fancy in order to play that role. This is, it starts within. And if you are letting your light shine and you are constantly making those small choices in your everyday life to be kind, to be generous, to serve, then your light is going to shine brighter every day. And you are going to be part of what makes this world not only a better place for future generations, but a place where it's possible for future generations to thrive. Because we've seen the results of greed and competition and me first attitudes. It doesn't work. We're not meant to live that way. We're part of a planetary and perhaps way larger web of life that's, that's held together by the glue of love. That's what makes the world work. And if we want our world to work, then we need to put ourselves in harmony with that impulse, the impulse of love within us that is going to make our light shine and make our contribution meaningful as we move into 
a new way of being, a new way of being in relationship with one another, with all life, and with the planet that gives us life. Ooh, gorgeous, beautiful. You're talking really good medicine for all of us. And you just mentioned an, another piece that you write about, which I really appreciate, is that th- through all these different traditions, there are these universal values. And you mentioned the kindness and generosity. You also talk about compassion. So I'm really happy that you presenced those universal values here in our conversation as well. You also mentioned, and one last question, and we'll move to Kurt here. You mentioned the serious black backlash of extreme nationalism. And I'm wondering if you have a prescription for us there of how do we navigate this backlash? We're, we're watching it play out on the streets. We're watching it play out in politics. And the we have some beautiful prescriptions already, but is there anything specific you want to say about this backlash of extreme nationalism? I think the first thing is to recognize it as backlash. I don't know whether you've had this experience. It's happened to me many times when I'm doing something where I'm really trying to bring forth the light in a big way. There's always darkness that that gets unleashed when you bring forth more light. And I've I've heard this uh, described as the analogy of shining a flashlight into your basement. And maybe you see some cobwebs or some creatures scurrying around that you that you didn't know were there. So I see this as a time when great light is coming forth. This whole new consciousness is being birthed in the human species. We're at a place we've never been before, where the light is just pouring in. Naturally, there is going to be a fearful response from people whose souls maybe aren't quite ready to step into the light. They feel threatened. They feel they will lose something. Uh, the the great spiritual leaders have all been selfless and you know that's that's not something our culture tells us to be our culture tells us to go out there and succeed make a name for yourself and get rich and famous this is part of the dying civilization not that we can't be rich and famous <laughs> <laughs> but if, that, if that's your goal, you're, you're, you're operating from a very small place. Mm-hmm. And yet if you're operating from what can I do to make life better for the people around me? What can I do to make the world a better place? Then you have every possibility to succeed. But don't be surprised if there are challenges. We live in a world of duality. We are not yet in a nirvana of oneness. So... Don't be surprised if the light kicks up some darkness. I see it as the death throes of a dying civilization so that the new might be birthed in a a wonderful uh, flood of light, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And I see it happening. This is not like a pipe dream. That's why my chapter is called the, you know, the Quiet Revolution, because it's actually happening as we speak. This is what we see when we see uh, uh, demonstrations for Black Lives Matter conducted by white people 
in other countries from where the incidents that provoked it occurred. That is the light shining. That is us standing up for one another and people who have privileges standing up and saying, it's not okay for me to have privileges that you don't have. This is the light shining. And so I think we need to let the universe work its drama through. We need to recognize that sometimes it is this explosion of negative energy that produces the chaos from which transformational change can occur. Hmm. That was really a perfect response, Deborah. And I'm going to just just tell you a little bit more of right before I came here, I, I saw a post of a friend, dear friend in my neighboring community here who said, I'm just so dejected and frustrated and feeling hopeless. And I put in a comment, uh, well, there's so much goodness happening and there's so much da, 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 and almost paraphrasing your, your last response and promised that they will get some hope if they listen to this series and just said, I'm doing a series and here's the link to the first show and here's the second. So that was perfect. Thank you. That's what we all need to hear that this light is simply doing its, its work in the world in this quiet way that, that you, that you talk about this quiet revolution and that the backlash is a part of this process. But you also mentioned a perfect lead in, to Kurt, you said a whole new consciousness is being birthed. So, Kurt, Kurt, you're still here. You and Dr. David Sloan Wilson wrote a chapter on integrating an evolutionary vision of the future with hard science. And you introduced the conversation of including personal and cultural, even cosmic evolution alongside the genetic evolution. Can you talk more about the emerging expansion of, of hard science that is reconciling what we sense to be true of conscious evolution in our time? Yeah, absolutely. And just to say that it's interesting, David Sloan Wilson is um, now these days called the most famous evolutionary biologist in the world because of him championing what's turned out to be an, an entire paradigm change in mainstream science that I'm going to talk about now and the context in our chapter is that we had been invited over to visit his holiness the dalai lama at his home in uh, dharmashali india last november to actually explain to his holiness what's happened with this sea change in how mainstream science is looking at um, at how evolution works is evolution all competition or is does evolution as it complexifies actually change from a competitive model to a cooperative model. And so what's happened here, and I, I, to be honest, as an evolutionary biologist, I would have never quite suspected that one of the great allies of this consciousness shift that we're talking about would come straight out of mainstream science. But what happened is everyone knows that the story that we were originally told from Darwin's work was that survival of the fittest, uh, was how natural selection worked, and that uh, survival of the fittest meant uh, the survival of the best competitor to uh, survive and reproduce and then and then carry on and that became you know what 's known as social Darwinism, so 
All economics operates that way. Shark Tank, all politics operates that way. Shark Tank, all business operates that way. Shark Tank, and certainly the entire history of the world, has been not only just competition, but conflict and out, outright war and destruction based on the idea that, uh, that that's how biological process worked. It turns out, and this was a revolution that started in 2015, it turns out that once science was able to study massive data sets and also use the current technology that we have to study massive data sets, they could take a look at how groups actually make decisions. And what's interesting is that they found, and this was 2015, they found that actually when groups make decisions, they make it, to use the name of your show, they make those decisions for the good of the whole. And that whether that is done naturally, by naturally selecting the way that natural process would go by adaptation, or whether it's made consciously, like in a conscious being like ourselves would have a conscious choice. <clears throat> when groups make decisions, or when levels of groups make decisions, they actually make decisions for what serves the whole and what serves the betterment of the whole, which is completely the opposite of what goes on at the most primitive levels within an in-group where competition um, is a fact. So what happens then is that survival of the fittest remains true, but the definition of fitness changes as you go from a primitive and non-complex system to a complex system, let alone one that has a, an intelligent being that's, that's able to make choices. Now, that was finalized in the book called The Foundational Questions of Science that was done by Yale and Templeton in 2015. David Sloan Wilson was the champion of that. And then he was joined by E.O. Wilson, who everybody knows that name, the famous Harvard biologist who was the founder of sociobiology, which is the biology of social organisms. And in 2016, in a series in the Quarterly Review of Biology, uh, E.O. Wilson and David Sloan Wilson then rewrote the rubrics of sociobiology to talk about what's now called the cooperative model of evolution. So here's the deal. You know, 150 years after Darwin, we find out that the interpretation of survival of the fittest only as competition in Shark Tank was factually wrong. And it brings up the question, uh, well, what it does is it puts science in line and on track with the same message of the heart. In other words, the good guys should win. Altruistic behavior is selected for. Altruistic behavior should win. So anybody who took a negative connotation from my comments just before the break of where bad leadership might take us, actually the science is telling us that if you trust the process, it'll actually go in the direction of, of the good guys. Now, it may take time. And isn't it interesting that good, that fam famous Martin Luther King quote that the arc of justice bends, the arc of history bends slowly, but at least it bends toward justice. Certainly integral developmental theory, spiral dynamics, all those views of history show us that little by little by little, uh, humanity's gotten better and better and better, of course, as Deborah was saying, and you too, with these backlashes that then do happen because people are afraid, they're looking for safety, and instead of running to unity for safety, they run to division 
for safety because we have a long familiarity with division. We're good at it. We don't have a long familiarity with unity. So learning the skill sets of unity is actually, again, one of these thresholds of a new consciousness. But the good news is, and this is really revolutionary, that mainstream science now says that the direction of process itself by adaptation is always toward what is for the betterment of the, of the whole. And the question then is, having had it so wrong so long with regard to social Darwinism, the idea of competition and shark tank economics, politics, business, can we actually realize those are not the evolutionary principles? The evolutionary principles are the same as indigenous peoples, mutuality, reciprocity, love, kindness, and care, mutual care. So that's the challenge that's out there. But the difference it makes is that anybody who was leading from the heart used to think they were swimming upstream against biological process or had the wind in their face. Actually, what changes is now that we have the wind at our back, we're actually swimming with the current because evolutionary process is trying to take us that same altruistic direction. So that's amazing then. I would have never thought that mainstream science would end up so clearly so soon right now becoming an ally of, um, of this message of the heart. And that's actually what we summarize in our chapter <clears throat> couched in the conversations that we had with His Holiness in India. So it's a very potent conversation because His Holiness also weighs in. This has been his work of a lifetime. And so for him to then understand, <clears throat> excuse me, that this is also where science is saying that biological process is going is just huge. It's just a huge piece of good news. And uh, it's really good news. That is really good news. And it leaves me with um, the, the intrigue of two other pieces that you wrote about that we're not going to have time to explore. So I want to explore these more deeply with you at another time, Kurt. We're going to have to have a conversation because there are two other pieces to this chapter that I'm going to encourage the, the listeners to grab their book to read because there's one piece in here in particular where you talk about how the, the particular conditions to enable this evolution that we're talking about on the planet do not necessarily self-organize. And Oftentimes, we're feeling like that impulse of evolution is organizing us. And so you talk about some specific conditions that must be met for for us to, to move into this cultural healing. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And that point is super important. It's very simple. Yes, people process will choose the best option for the whole, but that option has to be put on the table. In other words, that's why the work of all of us in the transformative community is so important, because if we don't put out the models that could actually move things in this better direction, they're not there to be chosen. It's the equivalent in biological process. If there's not a mutation that natural selection can select for, <clears throat> it can't take that direction. So when it comes to conscious evolution, Oh my gosh, that's why the message of this book is so important. Every chapter is laying out an option of a direction you could choose to go. And that's the whole key. If those choices aren't there, you can't move from what science calls proximate cause to actual cause. So that's a huge point that you bring out. 
Yeah, beautiful. The other one that I think is is really important here is the idea that evolution is the problem and the solution. So I'm really glad that you addressed that other one. And in a minute or less, can you talk about evolution as the problem or the solution? We just have a brief minute here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Again, it's really, really simple. What is adaptive and for the good in one time becomes maladaptive and not for the good in the later time. It's just like when, a, when an instrument you buy starts to wear out. So we have to be proactively on top of these choices because, uh, you know, it's what Einstein said. You cannot solve the problems at the level that they were created. If you don't move ahead to the other level of solving them, then you're not going to be able to do it. So evolution is the answer, but it also becomes the problem over time. It has to be the course correction has to go on constantly. Perfect. Thank you, Kurt, for joining me today. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom. And Deborah, thank you for joining me again. I'm really honored to bring these conversations out to our listeners and hopefully encourage them to pick up this book and make that choice, just like you said, chapter by chapter, moment by moment, every day. I'm going to leave you listeners with another quote from James O'D regarding bridge building during our moment of choice. He says, in the last decade, this integrated form of activism embodied by the great peacemakers, Muhammad Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., has started to be known as sacred activism, mystical activism, conscious activism, evolutionary activism, and visionary activism. This type of activism calls for cultivation of wisdom and passion for engaging the whole person and the whole truth. It is deeply dialogic and informed by the integration of new science and spirituality. It expresses deep ecological and environmental awareness, mobilized by new forms of conscious organizing. It envisions the birth of a new humanity. You've been listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you... A world of love. Bye for now.